what we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Hello, I'm Kenny Smith, and this is The Best Story I've Heard Today, a podcast for news junkies. We know you can't possibly see all of the great content being produced, so we're bringing you a story that you might have otherwise overlooked. Our guests each day tell us about the best story they've found, and today we're pleased to welcome back to the program Zach Osterman with the Indianapolis Star. And Zach's going to do a little something different for the format for the program today, not talking about a new story, but a classic story. Zach, tell us about what you found and tell us why we should read it as well. Yeah, it's... uh it is, I think, something of a classic. It's a column more than a story written by uh, Mike Royko of, of so much Chicago fame. It was published the day after Martin Luther King was uh, assassinated in 1968. And um, the title of it is Millions in His Firing Squad. And it's uh, the, the third sentence of the column is they can't catch everybody. And Martin Luther King was executed by a firing squad that numbered in the millions. And, and essentially the, the thrust of the column is um, asking people to try and wake up to the idea that, that racism is not something that America even, you know, well, certainly not now, as we lear- we've learned, but not in 1968 could compartmentalize to certain places, to certain parts of the country, to certain, I guess you'd say, socio-cultural layers of, of American stratosphere. Um, that it was something and that, that, that the war that was sort of waged against Dr. King uh, was something that, that was pervasive across American culture in ways that, that lots of people didn't really want to admit and probably, frankly, I think in some ways still don't want to admit. We're obviously at the 50th anniversary, but a lot of contemporary issues still permeate through this. That was that column, by the way, was published in the uh, Chicago Daily News uh, this week in 1968. Uh, we're still dealing with the ramifications of that. John Lewis, who knew the doctor, was in Indianapolis this week. Just today, it was announced that uh, the Kennedy King Park in Indianapolis, where RFK spoke after uh, the Reverend was assassinated, uh, has been named a national commemorative site. And RFK was the beginning of the program today. Socially, we're still dealing with a lot of this stuff. It's not just history here. And if you read that column today that you're talking about with fresh eyes, if you've never seen that before, it's damning and it is contemporary in a lot of respects. Yeah, and you know, and I think this this tends to happen to to people. We sort of mythologize uh, in American culture, and and I'm not for one moment saying that Dr. King did not des- does not deserve a level of mythology for his importance in to American history to American society. Um, but we tend to forget, you know, sometimes we, we tend to sort of, you know, shove uh, the bullet points of their lives and their teachings and their philosophies into a history textbook, and that becomes who they are to a lot of people. And I think a lot of what Dr. King actually, um, you know, preached against has, has kind of been forgotten. And one of the things that's, that always sticks with me is, is something he wrote in Letters from uh, Birmingham Jail, essentially the idea that in his eyes, in many ways, the struggle of minorities, and of course, in, in that time, in that place, African-Americans to gain equal rights, to, to have full access to their rights, their civil rights as Americans, 
is not the, I think he says, the, the, the Ku Klux Klan or the White Citizens Council here, but the moderate who is more interested in the status quo and, and not shaking, you know, the social order because it makes him uncomfortable. Who is a man that, that believes he can set the terms for another man's freedom? I think that's, that's paraphrasing, but there's a lot of that, those words and that sentiment in, in Royko's piece. You know, he mentions, he says it would it'd be easy to point to the southern redneck and say he did it, but what are the northern disc jockey turned commentator with the slippery words of hate every morning? What about the northern mayor who steps all over every poverty program advancement, thinking of only political expediency until riots fester while white, whites react with more hate and the gap between the races grows bigger? Crossing the congressman with the stupid arguments against busing and the pathetic women who turn out with eggs in their hands to throw at children. It, it's really addressing, I think, in some ways a more sinister level of, of racism and racial inequality that in the 1960s, I think people didn't really want to confront or really know how to confront. And I don't know that we've gotten a lot better at confronting them in 2018, but I think we were certainly at least airing a lot of that more publicly than we ever have before. Police violence, um, urban policing, urban educational decay, what you'd call de facto segregation as opposed to de jure segregation, segregation, you know, by by circumstance rather than segregation enforced by law, a la Jim Crow. And, and it is, you're right, something that, that it, it's it's telling to read what Royko wrote 50 years later, and, and maybe a little bit, you know, depressing, honestly, to read what he wrote 50 years later and, and sort of and just think, sort of see maybe how how we thought we'd come so far, and, and in some respects, we, we really haven't. If we look at the actual craft of the writing that he's doing here, I think it works in that respect because many of the images he's putting in our minds are these uh, featureless characters. that They're not just people by name, per se. This piece works to me in, the, in a long-term sense because he's talking about a kind of person rather than always a specific person and where he's foisting his anger at what he has heard and what he's having to write about that it is it is that redneck character it is that person playing cards it is the person that doesn't do anything or does this but not that rather than naming every kind of person in a 1960s context like that because we can still see those people or we can at least imagine those people if we don't know them i, I will profess to not have done deep study of of the way that civil rights was covered, you know, in, in the news media in the 1960s. But I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, it, it was even something that for a, a lot of journalists or reporters or however you want to assign those roles in that time, I'm guessing it was something that was generally sort of sectioned off, at least in, maybe not overt, maybe not overtly, but in coverage, you know, coverage of racial inequality or racial violence or, you know, widespread protest against, let's say, for civil rights was something that was confined to southern states to, to you know, analyzing and breaking down Jim Crow and, and, and sort of talking about that tension between what you might go, you know, what, what might be happening in Georgia, where I'm from, say, as opposed to, to Illinois. And there is a strong... And I think one of Royko's strengths was his ability to kind of flesh out characters. In fact, I think he even had a, a rotating cast of um, fictional, basically, aliases that he almost wrote columns speaking to so that he had a, 
you know, just kind of another voice that could that could almost within the column banter back and forth with him. But but that ability to to call out all these people who probably at the time thought, I'm you know I'm not marching against busing. My son goes to what I call an integrated school, or my daughter. We don't enforce poll taxes where I live, so I, I'm I'm not racist. And certainly, I, I think you always want to be careful how you throw around words like that. But what Royko I think is saying in this column is that there are a lot of there were a lot of people, and unfortunately in America probably still are a lot of people that didn't appreciate how complicit they were in a system that still, even in places that did not have letter of the law segregation in place were, were disadvantaging minorities in myriad different ways. The title of the column is Millions in His Firing Squad, and it was published originally in April of 1968 after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We've got a link to that column from Mike Royko and to Zach Osterman below the audio player. Please do check those out. Zach, thanks again for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, as always. This is the best story I've heard today. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll share it with others. Thanks for listening. We look forward to sharing stories with you again very soon. I'm Kenny Smith. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the